I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 94 for August. My name is Simon, and I'm just sitting here with my podcast uh, my podcast buddy, Duncan, who's reading some notes off his phone. Yeah. And I've, like, got mine printed out on paper at, like, 14-point font or something. Yeah. Um, such a difference. So maybe maybe I'm checking t- checking TikTok. You don't maybe, know. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just assume you're just more technically minded than me. I'm just old school. I've, mine all written longhand, you know? Yeah. <laughs> with a quill. So, yeah, so uh, I'm Duncan, and 1994 was a stellar year for film. And 94 felt very much like the explosion of Generation X when I went back and looked at these. And in many ways, it belonged to one man, Quentin Tarantino. Mm. Pulp Fiction was a film I must have seen literally 10 times in the cinema. I remember just going all the time when I was in Hamilton at university going to see that because uh, it was cheaper in the afternoons. Do you remember? And yeah, the yeah, yeah. So this well. was what, year two of Varsity for you? Yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so and also Tarantino's script for Natural Born Killers was turned into a wild visual ride by Oliver Stone, mm. and even Tarantino's co-writer, the rather shadowy Roger Avery, mm. released his nihilistic drug-fueled Euro bank heist thriller Killing Zoe in '94. That's right. Yeah, it was also the year of mega hit Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption, Quiz Show, True Lies, Speed. Jim Carrey had three huge films, Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. Uh, perhaps my favorite Tim Burton film, Ed Wood. Mm. John Waters' Serial Mum. Brandon Lee's final film, the dark gothic action film, The Crow, with a killer soundtrack that I still rock to this day. Yeah, cool. Uh, the groundbreaking basketball documentary, Hoop Dreams. Kevin Smith broke through with Clerks. Peter Jackson surprised everyone by releasing the universally loved Heavenly Creatures. Mm-hmm. And it was a big year for Gary Oldman, the dark noir Romeo is bleeding, as Beethoven in Immortal Beloved, which contains a beautiful sequence of the realisation of his Ninth Symphony, and most memorably, uh, Oldman's unhinged Stansfield in Leon the Professional, Mm. um, ironically enough, who is right into Beethoven. Yeah. Yeah. And um, two films from 94 that I urge you to check out, if you haven't, are Fresh and The Last Seduction. Yeah. And of course, for me personally, towering above them all is Mike Lee's Naked. Yeah. That is the heck of 94, but that's a great year to hit when you're in like year two of film school. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. We've spoken about it before how um, this ground, groundbreaking uh, Tarantino was mm. and, and just changed the whole landscape and the first kind of pop star film director, yeah. really. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah great stuff. Bit, yeah. What well, about what about horror films? Well, then? there's some genuinely good or at least interesting horror stuff from '94. Yeah, uh, this is also the year that Netflix's first of its Fair Street tr- trilogy is set in. Uh-huh. Uh, but more on that later. Uh, the biggest horror release of the year was undoubtedly Interview with a Vampire, which had the star power of Cruz and Pitt, uh, and before he passed, River Phoenix, whose role will go on to uh, be Christian Slater's, along with Kirsten Dunst and Antonio Banderas, or was it Wolf? Uh, that has Jack Nicholson becoming a werewolf. I don't know. Wes Craven's New Nightmare, though, is probably the best in 94, I think. Mm-hmm. But we've talked about that in depth before. 
So instead, uh, I'll get on some other stuff. John Carpenter wasn't exactly in peak form with the Lovecrafty and in the mouth of madness, mm-hmm. but at least it's a couple of years away from when he starts getting his, you know, into his escape from LA's and <laughs> ghosts of Mars, man. Um, also, Sam Neill is well committed to his breakdown in that film, which is mm-hmm. great to see. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember being kind of visually quite good. Yeah, like it's just it's middling Carpenter, I guess. Yeah. You know? But um, Sam, yeah, it is visually is kind of good, and Sam Neill is really good. It reminds me of mm. you know, um, Possession or one of those films where he's just yeah totally going for broke. Eh? Yeah. Um, and while it's not good, I do have a really big soft spot for the uh, misfiring madness that is Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> um, I mean, it's campy over the topness is kind of compelling to me somehow. Yeah. Uh, and the scene where a shirtless Branagh wrestles his creation in what looks like jelly <laughs> is the height of the director's stars narcissism and the film's enjoyable ridiculousness for me yeah I what, think wonderful what do you think about de niro as franken as frankenstein's monster um it's kind of ridiculous as well yeah. i mean the accent you know yeah um but i'm all in on that film eh? it's yeah. just it's got hammer gone camp and you know it's yeah. ridiculous and over the top and Brannig is just reveling in it all eh? <laughs> um so i really enjoy that film and i know it's not great yeah not even good maybe but yeah it's it's Batty, eh? Yeah. Uh, it's also the year of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't a particularly good film or a notable entry in the franchise either. Except, except that it's the one with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger. And that alone is something. Yeah, I remember watching this on VHS. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not bad, innit? Yeah. I mean, um, it's not a great film. Yeah. But um, McConaughey's nutty, eh? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, and then I remember when he was in Rain of Fire too, and it's like you know that he does have a real thing for just you know. Yeah, he can go full cage if he wants. Yeah, to, yeah, eh? he absolutely can. Yeah, but let's talk Cemetery Man. Oh yeah, yeah, a borderline plotless zombie film in which the beautiful Rupert Everett watches over a cemetery that is cursed to always reanimate those who are buried in its grounds. Often the returnees while also falling in love with a beautiful widow called She. At least that's her name according to IMDb. I don't remember her getting the name of the film. <laughs> Uh, the slim plot is more than compensated by memorable moments. My favourite being the busload of scouts who collide with a motorcycle gang, <laughs> leading to a bumper crop of returnees for the cemetery, including a biker who's buried with his motorcycle, <laughs> uh, right. which means he returns, bike and all, roaring out of out of the grave. Ah, sensational. I yeah. love that film. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right about Rupert Everett. He is comically good-looking, isn't he? It's like, so beautiful. Yeah. The other thing with that, of course, is, 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 as I mentioned on this podcast before, it's based on uh, Dylan Dog, yeah. the uh, Italian comic, and he looks exactly the same. Right. And I do wonder whether uh, it's going to be reverse-engineered. Reverse-engineered, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, so maybe it didn't quite start off quite like that, and then they cast him, and then everything subsequent after that was like, oh, let's just do <laughs> yeah. let's just do Rupert Everett. I mean, it's a neat film. It's also very arty, you know, for the yeah. time, you know, 94 and art zombie film would seem kind of peculiar yeah I, uh, there's a scene in that where he's just sitting there waiting for people to just walk up and he's just like shooting them in the head yeah like casually reloading isn't he like so yeah yeah in a hospital i think yeah 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 and uh, that was great mm. just kind of like he was doing a job like a, just a janitor having to clean up just yeah. like oh here's some more ants come to you know <laughs> eat some yeah, honey yeah. or something yeah hey so uh what have you been watching this month uh watched a few but um the one I wanted to talk about was Blood Red Sky. Oh, yeah? Uh, an aeroplane is taken over by terrorists, but little do they know that on board with oh. them, a passenger with a serious medical condition oh. is about to make their lives hell. I know the film you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I've seen the trailer. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Oh, I am so looking forward to this. Yeah. Go, go. Okay. So 
On this plane, the in-flight meal served is gory carnage. The film's opening 30 minutes is fairly riveting. The bad guys are proven to be pure evil and worthy of the vicious slaughter that's coming their way. The loving mother and her son struggling to maintain their secret. Uh, now, the film dips into flashbacks that offer insight into the mother's past, but each time it also takes away from the tension of the present scene, I found. The, the flashbacks also indicate a larger problem with the story. They don't illuminate enough to justify their inclusion. If I was in the script writing process, I would have really thought about mm. what's this impact going to have on the events that are happening um, and, and, and what you're flashing back to. Is it really that amazing that you, you want to break that tension? Mm. Um, the film is a shade over two hours, so I think that's quite long for a zombie film. Mm. And uh, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not Zack Snyder long for, for, for that. Yeah. Um, it suffers a little from the repetitious and familiar second half. I uh, decided to ramp up the stakes through numbers of threats rather than invention. Um, there are a lot of logical questions I can't go into without major spoilers. But the film has an excellent premise that promises to go deeper but never really gets there. It doesn't have the white knuckle tension or clear characters of Train to Busan. Um, but as far as Netflix movies go, this is on the higher levels. Right. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's no Ballad of Buster Scruggs or Marriage Story or or The Irishman. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly way stronger and more original than the glut of domestic thrillers that clog up the recommendation aisle on the Netflix app, that's for sure. Right. Uh, yeah, if you're a horror fan, I reckon check it out. Um, the beginning's great. The premise is excellent. Um, just doesn't quite deliver there for me. So uh, yep. I'd be curious to see what you think about that. Yeah, cool. Oh, that's great because I did. I remember seeing the trailer and thinking that looks pretty cool. That seems like my bag. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it's uh, it's a really one of those strong kind of. It's like snakes on a plane level, um, just premise. Yeah, it's like, great yeah. premise. Nice. What about you? What have you been watching? Well, again, a little bit. I mean, I saw Fast and the Furious Nine and Black Widow in the cinema, so I've seen wow. a few of these. You know, the the big the big um, blockbusters that come out recently. But oh. that's not what I'm going to talk about. Oh. Um, and also, I am going to get spoilers, and I don't really care. Okay. So if you start hearing me get into this and think, "Oh, I don't want this movie spoiled," then you can skip this. But I don't think it's going to. You know, what I about me? Think... Do I just like block my ears? I've got a feeling you've seen this film. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm pretty confident you've already seen this film and you've just waited for me to catch up so that we could have this discussion. Right. So here we are. This month I watched Danny Boyle's Yesterday. Ah, yes. Yeah. And listeners, I did not care for it. <laughs> uh, and I feel a little bit, I feel kind of bad about this because I've spoken to a lot of people who really liked it mm. and people who I respect. And uh, look, I wanted to love it too. And for a little while, maybe a quarter of it, maybe the first quarter, I was on board with some, some little reservations, which we're going to get to. Yeah. Uh, and for the for those who haven't seen the film or the or the one, wonderful trailer, I remember seeing the trailer and thinking that is a great mm. premise, which uh, which, to, which and it totally made me think I'd like the film. Yesterday is about struggling musician Jack Malik, played by Hamish Patel, who has an accident and wakes up in a world in which the Beatles never happened. Mm. Uh, so with the memory of some of the greatest pop songs ever in his head, he passes them off as his own and rapidly becomes a recording superstar. So it's a cool it's a cool idea for a film. Yeah. Uh, and for a while, I was on board with that. There's a scene early on when Jack tries to play Let It Be to his parents, <laughs> who just can't pay attention long enough to hear more than like three lines, uh, which is wonderful. I really like that scene because yeah. that sense of a family long accustomed to their son's mediocre pop doodlings, you know? Yeah. And their son's frustration because for once in his life, he knows he's about to perform one of the greatest songs ever written, and his audience just doesn't appreciate the importance of this like historic moment. Yeah, it's frustrating and it's real. Yeah, and it's pretty funny. And this part of the film really works for me. But as he becomes increasingly famous, 
there are less and less scenes like this and more and more moments in which over the top evil music execs you know mm. like the his one note manager played by kate mckinnon who would twirl her mustache if she had one behave like soulless cliches they are but here's the thing all of that would probably be fine enough except this isn't just a film about the soullessness of the record industry it's a love story a terrible terrible love story you see when jack was just a struggling muso cycling from pub gig to pub gig he was supported by a long-suffering manager slash best friend an angelic Lily James playing a besotted too-good-to-be-true Ellie. Ellie has been secretly in love with Jack since they were kids. Jack fr Jack's friends even question why they've never got together. A question Richard Bloody Curtis's script has no interest in answering and has no plausible way to answer it because there's no good answer to this. Eventually, for no good reason, Ellie decides they could never be together anyway because he's a superstar and she's a teacher. Not sure why this is a sudden issue in the film. Thus forcing a silly choice. Ellie, who's all things lovely and decent, and the music industry, which is corrupt, cruel, and morally bankrupt, of course. Spoilers ahead, folks, like I said. Jack performs one of those big gestures of love, admitting his feelings for Ellie in front of a sold-out Wembley Stadium, saying he loves her and always has. Something absolutely unsupported by anything else that occurred in this film to this point, by the way. Of course, this being a bad rom-com, Ellie has already moved on with the new boyfriend, Gavin, who naturally, in time-honored fashion, gives her up without hesitation. Now, we at Spoiler Alert have discussed this woeful trope many times in the past. And we even have a name for it. Gavin is a putz. <laughs> He's the other love interest in rom-coms introduced to create some drama, even though everyone watching knows that he will never end up with the girl. Putzes are always nice guys. After all, they're kind enough to realise how lovely the girl the lead should be with is. Mm. I mean, that's, they've got some empathy. But the other attribute of putzes is that they always give up the fight without a whimper. Mm. They're never heartbroken because if they were, we might feel bad as an audience for them. And maybe we'd like the leads a little bit less in that case. So putzes don't feel remorse or loss. They just move on. Often, conveniently, with a nearby girl who's in the film for no other reason than to be a putz's reward for his all-round spinelessness. As I was watching the scene in yesterday of the putz realising a sad place in the tradition of bad rom-com tropes, I noticed Ellie's flatmate, a girl who had maybe a line or two in the film at this point, just hovering in the background, getting an old close-up. And I thought, well, what's going on here? And then I realised, ah, she exists in this film for Gavin to hook up with. So the audience don't need to worry about poor, sad sack Gavin. He was going to be fine, partnered up with an almost mute, borderline extra. <laughs> and that's really the last quarter of yesterday. As soon as I saw this inevitable avalanche of cliches coming, I felt crushed. You know, whatever goodwill the opening 20 minutes had built up for me, drained away my hopes that Curtis and Boyle could find a unique clever way to deal with a premise that was now and change back pretty compelling just an absolute disappointment yes i think i did hold off going on this that was a spectacular ramp by the way i just want to say yeah and uh yeah mirrored my feelings um as well i i, I remember in this watching this and yeah being it's kind of all of the not all the best, but it's got a lot of good stuff in it that Richard Curtis does. It's also got some of the, his worst excesses. Mm. And um, the Lily James character is just um, ridiculous. Yeah. Like, it's an absolutely ridiculous, could only be written by a man role. You know what I mean? Um, and it's like, this guy doesn't notice Lily James. You know, like, I mean, it's... Oh, it's, it's, she, it's, she's beautiful. Yeah. She's delightful. 
Yeah. She's long suffering. Yeah. Super Always supportive. supporting. And there's no and as you say, the main thing is that there's no reason why they're not together. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And like, what is his realization at the end? Other than he happened to like, love Lily James, which we know, as you rightly point out, was never indicated before. Mm. So it's kinda of like what is you know what I mean? Like what what's his actual journey? What what does he learn from being delivering the Beatles music to everyone and yeah. then at the end of it? It ends with him singing a Beatles tune, you know, Ubladi Ublada, yeah, like to a, totally, to a class. Totally. And I'm like, okay, but I don't get what your journey is. I, I, so many unanswered un, questions by this film. Yeah. And so many things that would have been really interesting for them to explore. Like, yeah. they touch on the idea that, like, if you're performing these songs, but you don't really know where they came from. Yeah. You know, that that's touched on, but it's not really explored in a really meaningful way. That no. lack of connection to what they mean, you know? Yeah, that's right. And, um, yeah, and there's no – what I thought was going to happen – he's got that song, and I can't remember what the song is called. And, oh, and, yeah, 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 his, his summertime song. Summertime song, it? and his friend's, like, joking, like, oh, plays – and I thought that was going to be the end of it. I thought that he was going to get to the end and, and, and either forget or run out or actively decide, you know what, I'm going to stop jumping on this and I'm going to play this average song. Yeah, I'm going to play my song. And yeah. and it, it could be – and you could go anywhere with that. It could either be received rapturously or it could be received with people going, hmm, don't really rate that. One and of, showing a chink in the armor, so he's not yeah. just this hit machine, and he's like, "Hey, I'm human after all," or whatever. But one one of the things is, like like I said, there's that interesting bit with his parents not recognizing yeah. they're about to hear Let It Be and not understanding that it's genius. Yeah. But there becomes a point where Ed Sheeran comes in basically yeah. and, and recognizes he's a genius, and after that, nobody questions anything about his journey from there. Yeah, every right. song is great. Every everything yeah. is beloved, except for a dumb joke about Hey Jude, you know. Yeah. Um, so. I would have found it really interesting if maybe sometimes the Beatles don't stick. Yeah. You know, um, 50 years later, do the Beatles songs still work? Yeah. Why does nobody object to um, she was just 17? Yeah. You know, that's not going to find 2019. <laughs> yeah, right. I can't believe it. He plays it several times in the movie. I yeah. would have left that song out of the movie. Yeah. Because there's no way you're going to perform that without people going, dude, come on. Yeah. And me it, too. And he, he's not playing like, you know, Wild Honey Pie or Revolution 9. You know, it's like... Try and play that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, maybe people might go, hmm, maybe not that one. Yeah. Um, I mean, this film skates by on the fact that that's a great soundtrack. I mean, yeah. I've noticed a lot recently where I'm watching films where they've gone, they've bought a lot of good music and the music's doing a lot of heavy lifting yeah, for me, that's you know? Right. And this is a prime example because, I mean, what better soundtrack can you have than just every Beatles song that you can lay your hands on? You yeah, know? that's right. I mean, it's hard not to, you know when he starts playing um, The Long and Winding Road. I mean, that, yeah. that gets you because it's a great piece of music. Yeah, and that's a great scene. That's a good. That's, that's, that's a really that's good a scene. a really good scene, that one, that when he plays that and, you know, Ed Sheeran, of all people, is like, you know, I'm, I'm the Salieri to your Mozart, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a great moment. Did you know, by the way, uh, their first port of call was uh, Chris Martin. Oh, was it? Play that, and he said, nah. Really? Yeah, he said, oh, I think I've done that with extras. So oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's, I can understand that. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, apparently that's why Bowie didn't do uh, Flight of the Concords, Bowie in Space. Really? Yeah, because Flight of the Concords had him up and he oh, said, oh, and he'd already I've done. done extras. So. Yeah. Extras has ruined it for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Taken everyone. It's when I can get Daniel Radcliffe or Samuel Jackson. Well, he'd probably yeah. get Samuel Jackson, but, you know. Yeah. You get him to do anything. But, yeah. yeah, I agree with you about everything yesterday. It's really frustrating. Um, and, and just that journey, from a script writing point of view, if nothing else, it's just, yeah, it's a... It's, it's a yeah, it, it occurred to me when I was actually just driving around over here, it would have made more sense if the beginning of the film was they were in a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it would have made it 
uh, the film a lot better because it's yeah. every every other problem would exist. But if they were in a relationship, his stardom is what ruined their love, and then they found their way back to yeah, love again. That's right. That would have been stronger because I just do not believe in this couple. No. At all. No. And it's just, there's just no, and like you say, the arbitrary deadline of her going, oh, well, I can't be with you. You either get on that plane and be a rock star oh. or you stay with me. It's like, really? Like, that, really? For why? What? Yeah. There's, why is this ticking clock suddenly? Been you've, you've suddenly emerged in his life and just throwing, you know, yeah. ultimatums at him. What, for yeah. What? Yeah. It makes for no, no sense. real discernible reason as well. No. Like he doesn't. He, he could go to his meeting and come back to you. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, yeah. but it's also not like he's turning into like the guys out of Almost Famous, you know, where he's jumping off. You know, I'm a golden god and jumping off rooftops and stuff. You know, he's like kind of the same guy, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, he hasn't really changed. Yeah, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> that was that was. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Okay, and now we're uh, up to an unusual part here, Simon. Um, we have been going for ten years. We've been doing this ten years, a decade. ten years in podcasting. Like you know how people talk about dog years. Yeah, I mean this is like a thousand <laughs> in podcasting terms, eh? That's right. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's lifetimes in podcasting. Yeah, yeah, we've been you know ten years, man. Yeah, and, and the photos you see that I always put up. Um, yeah, every, every month we really we took those ten years ago. Yeah, we're, you know we're so much grayer. Yeah. Um, all the hope and, and acceleration is just drained out of my eyes. And... Oh, no, no. Yeah. You're as dashing now, at least, <laughs> as you were then. But yeah, 10 years. I mean, it's a generation, you know? It's, yeah, uh, yeah. I incredible. mean, you think about back to, to, to when we started mm. uh, 10 years ago, I guess um, no Avengers film had been released at that point. Mm. Uh, I think Iron Man had, but um, maybe right. Captain, yeah, yeah, yeah. Captain America. But I don't think, it, I think we did the first Avengers film. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. On the podcast. Yeah, I think so. I think um, so. What are, what other things have happened in that time? I think probably early on I discussed uh, rumours about Highlander getting made. Yeah. And, and, then, and then that's still going. There was a very last episode we did, yep. episode 93, there's a mention of Highlander. So 10 years at least, Highlander has been in development hell. Yeah. So that hasn't changed. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a non-changing thing. <laughs> um, 3D became a thing yep. and then went away. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Like for a while there, like I've, I think I've still got 3D glasses in my glove box in my car. Yeah. In case I think I'm going to shop at a 3D film, but <laughs> and for a while I needed to have them because you know every yeah. now and again, yep, yeah, that's a 3D screening, but that seems to have disappeared. Yeah, and I mean, in that time, um, Star Wars got um, yeah. reignited, and we've done totally. we've done all of those. I was actually thinking of doing an edit of all of our Star Wars reviews. Oh, what um, a good idea! We should together, so might do that as a special episode. I, I can remember walking up the road to work and seeing the poster. For Force Awakens, and it was, right. a, it was one of the character ones, Harrison Ford. And I thought, man, imagine going back in time, twenty years, and telling like twenty year younger Simon that he yeah. would be seeing this. Yeah, it's staggering, eh? Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing that they got that crew back for that. Yeah, it is. It is. It's quite incredible. Anyway, look to commemorate that ten years, we've decided to do a little bit of a best of, you know, yeah, to go back to relive our glory days. Yeah, it's like those clip shows, you know, like when they're like, "Hey, do you remember on the summer when we?" Went yeah, to- totally. It's like we've got stuck in a lift and we're just <laughs> re- recapping, and you know, yeah, um, yeah. So you know, back when we had a passion for this, and you know, just <laughs> <laughs> we could actually do good work. Yeah, no, no, um, it's been fun actually listening back to the last ten years of this. It has been. There's been some. Uh, there's. A, some quite amazing um, opinions and uh, predictions that mm. were wildly inaccurate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cowboys and Aliens, eh? Big hit, eh? They, yeah, big yeah. hit. But there was also uh, there's a lot of um, other films and stuff in there that we were we're talking about that we're kind of like excited for. Yeah. And yeah. then they turn out to be not good. 
No. Yeah, we're split it into two um, episodes. So this is the first. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first forty-five episodes you chose, didn't you, Simon? You went through. Yep, and that's right. Curated that's right. these. Yep, yep. Tried to mix it up and get a little bit of this and a bit of that. Yeah. Bit of you, bit of me, but yeah. um, just to, yeah, it's in, yeah, fun to listen to about what we were talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the second lot I managed to choose from episode forty-six on through to ninety-three-ish. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what I, what I did do is kind of avoid some of the specials. Yeah. So um, you know the the Friday Thirteenth yes. specials and, yes, and yes, yes, some yeah. of our deep yeah. dives on like um, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford. Uh, your your interview, unfortunately, with um oh. with the legendary Ken Loach. Oh, I don't need to hear my nervous voice <laughs> breaking as I try to interview the great Ken Loach. Yeah. Um, but um yeah, there's a lot of little specials in there that I didn't I didn't d- dip into. But yeah. uh, enjoy going back and listening to. Uh, Five years. This will be basically mm-hmm. the first five years of, yep. of, of um, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Okay, I've got one for you here, and um, this is one of the ones I, I can remember seeing it on a video store shelf. Thinking, are you serious? I've got to watch this film. It, it, it could be the it, well, it's going to be an experience. Uh, Tiptoes, two thousand and three. <laughs> okay. I've heard about this. I haven't seen it. Okay, uh, it's about firefighter Matthew McConaughey and his fiancee Kate Beckinsale's relationship coming a cropper. When she discovers he's from a family of dwarfs, his whole family, his uh, mother is a dwarf, his father's a dwarf, and brother Rolf is a dwarf as well. And while McConaughey's got issues and he struggles almightily with the heavy burden of being sired from dwarfs, and the fear that his own children could potentially be dwarfs as well, Beckinsale slowly begins a romantic relationship with McConaughey's brother Rolf. But the kicker here, and one of the reasons this film is so memorably terrible is that Rolf, the dwarf brother of McConaughey, is played by Gary Oldman. <laughs> Gary Oldman. Okay, this is a film that also features Peter Dinklage, who's a brilliant actor, you know? Uh, he was in The Station Agent, and he stole scenes in Elf and uh, Living in Oblivion. He's, a, he's an actual dwarf, and he's a great actor, but he's not the star. Gary Oldman <laughs> is the star dwarf on this set, uh, walking around on his knees with his little arms tucked into his side so he can look as dwarfy as possible. Uh, so in a film that strains to be a plea for understanding and compassion to people who are vertically challenged, they couldn't even see fit to cast an actual dwarf <laughs> in the lead. It's like making a film about Rosa Parks and having Gwyneth Paltrow in blackface. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our, that is, I, I can't think of a more insulting sort of casting decision. But Ullman's not the actor we're going after here. Well, no, no. It... Tiptoes has bigger problems than Ullman. Uh, it's got Kate Beckinsale and Matthew McConaughey. Right. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a terrible script. But roman- and romantic scenes with a shrunken down Gary Oldman must have been pretty difficult. But Beckinsale is just lost. She's terrible here. She's not up to the challenge at all. And I don't think the distributors knew what they were doing with this film as well because the trailer is just a magnificently terrible... It's worse than the movie. The trailer... <laughs> wow. If you're ju- judging it on trailer terms and movie terms, the trailer is appalling. Um, we'll put it up on Facebook on our site so you can all have a watch. Nice. Um, it's really worth checking out. And in honour of this month's No Comps film, Priest, we've decided to explore the noble tradition of religious figures who don't turn the other cheek. The cinematic men and women of God who say, Thou shalt not kill. Less of a commandment and more of just a polite suggestion. That you can ignore if you feel like it. Yeah. So this is our five kick-ass clerics. And um, I'm going to start with The Exorcist. <laughs> because if in the movies, if you're suffering from a supernatural incursion or some sort of demonic possession, there's only one place to go for help. 
You don't look to the Presbyterians or the Anglicans or any of those non-denominational folk dressed in their civvies. What you're looking for is 2,000 years of tradition, a vow of celibacy, and a nice stiff white collar. <laughs> in short, you go Catholic or you go home, or to hell. <laughs> and in The Exorcist, we meet the first in this line of clerical ass-kickers, Father Karras, a priest who might not be the wisest or most patient exorcist, but he is definitely the scrappiest, doling out his own form of priestly pugilism. In the film and the book, uh, there's so much about the power of prayer and religion and faith. It's interesting that it takes boxing to beat Beelzebub in the end, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. You know, it. Uh, no matter how long the exorcism went, you basically had to just take off the gloves. Yeah. Yeah, at the end. Just go round for round. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. And that solved the problem pretty smart. Uh, I mean, Father Karras dies, but... Yeah. You know. The demon was probably winning on points, and then they just got up, the knockout blow. Really, up to that stage, yeah, it was. It was late. It was a late, <laughs> a late belt rally. You're quite right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Next one is Father Magruder from Brain Dead, 1992. <sighs> Love this. From what is still my favourite Peter Jackson film, comes the the stern father who can preach a scolding lesson to the living in his eulogy and back it up with a brutal lesson to the undead in martial arts. When the film's hero is attacked by zombie bikers in a graveyard, Father Magruder appears and delivers a rapid-fire assault, including kicks to the face, tearing zombies' arms with his bare hands and then using their arms to beat their own heads. It is the highlight of the film that is packed with highlights, and all the greater because the audience has no idea that he has any fighting ability at all, let alone he is a, like a kung fu master. Yeah. And uh, he also gets the audience cheering by proudly delivering the film's seminal line. I kick ass for the Lord! Oh, I love that line. I love that film too. That's great. That is a wonderful film. All right, my next one is uh, from quite a recent one, actually. Machete 2010, in which uh, Padre, played by Cheech Marin, is perhaps the epitome of the priest who's only too willing to put down the crucifix and pick up the shotgun. Uh, but, you know, you know, when your priest is played by Cheech Marin, You've mm. got to expect him to be a bit fast and loose with regular kind of rules. Yeah. And like he says, when a bad guy's pleading for mercy at the sharp end of his shotgun, God has mercy, I don't. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, this one is The Preacher from Pale Rider, oh, 1985. Wow. Cool, cool. Yeah. yeah, I love this film. From a film bathed in religious overtones, Clint Eastwood's penultimate cowboy hero is also one of his most intriguing creations. An unnamed preacher who may or may not literally be death rides into town. He is so kick-ass, he even lets his enemies reload their guns and then draws against them. <laughs> and uh, he does very little praying, but a whole lot of preaching with his gun. Yeah, and with a nice length of hickory. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Power Rider's a great film. I love Power Rider. Uh, if you haven't seen it, really, check it out. Yeah, it's, um, it, yeah, well worth it. It's an underrated uh, Eastwood uh, Western. Right up there, I really like that, and High Plains Drifter. Yeah, yeah they're, a good, they're a good pair. Um, and I'm going to go out with a film I've talked about previously, actually, uh, in our Rubbish Conspiracies rant, um, Equilibrium from 2002. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely worth returning to because it's got a cinematic kick-ass cleric, so outrageously badass, they had to invent an awesome badass fighting style for him. <laughs> so in a futuristic dystopia shot through with gaping plot holes, Christian Bale is one of a group of clerics in order devoted to making sure people don't express dangerous emotions. He does this, of course, by kicking lots of ass with a martial arts style called gun kata, um, an implausible and Im- and implausibly cool combination of gunplay and kung fu all tied up together. Nice. Uh, it's really a lot of fun to watch and probably the coolest thing in the film. <laughs> Excellent. I still haven't seen that film, and I will have to watch it. Okay, if only for Christian Bale doing gun kata. Final Destination 2. If you're going to watch one of the Final Destination movies, I suggest this one, uh, e- even over the original. Much in the same vein as our feature film this week, Final Destination 2 doesn't take itself so seriously 
and it isn't particularly scary but it's thrillingly tense um and the deaths are spectacularly fun especially the beginning scene that is kind of a breathtaking highway pile-up that really actually set the tone for the rest of the mm. series increasingly graphic opening slaughters that opening too is so well choreographed it's yeah. so well set up yeah it is it's brilliantly done and the scene where death claims its first escaped victim it is actually a masterclass in building both tension and humor uh, you know, there's a guy in a kitchen cooking and there's windows dropping, wastemasters <laughs> malfunctioning, yeah, yeah, cooking yeah. fires igniting, knives flying. Oh, it's insane. But just among some of the multitude things that can kill one person in the kitchen, and yet he doesn't get killed by any of those things. He gets killed gruesomely by something else. And also, I've got to recommend, we were talking about maybe watching Shark Night uh, on 3D and film. Yeah. I'd suggest with Top Final Destination 2 is to watch it on DVD because it has a great commentary. I don't usually listen to commentaries, but for some reason I listen to this commentary. And it's got a really... Inter- like the, the filmmakers are so into it and they're just having a good laugh. They're also revealing the problems they had trying to convince the studio they needed to flatten a 10-year-old boy with a two-metre-wide pane of glass <laughs> dropped from 10 storeys. <laughs> uh, that, is, that is one of my favourite scenes too. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. Yeah, it is great. Yeah, it's, it's one of those films that just doesn't let up as far as just uh, just the ludicrous list yeah. of the deaths because the Final Destination franchise for me always had this problem that there's no real enemy to these films there's just no. stuff happening really mm. uh, but this film finds a great way to get around that by making the stuff happening so brilliant <laughs> that you really forget that there's no stakes here yeah. as such uh, <laughs> it's a great watch nothing could beat the two women in Human Centipede <laughs> um, that film is so gross yet the thing that stuck in my mind was A how incredibly inept their escape plans were and B, how incredibly mindless, banal, and annoying their dialogue was when their car broke down in the middle of nowhere at night. So instead of sticking to the road and walking back, they walked through dark woods even though they had zero idea where they were going, and they complained about it. The horror, the horror. Having their faces sewn to their asses was just desserts. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, he's not wrong. They're awful. Like I say, I stopped the film after 20 minutes, um, and it took me a long time to return to it. Yeah. Thank goodness for Dieter Laser, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, who plays the mad scientist, because he's awesome. Okay, so we're getting down to the sharp end of it, really. That's the right, big the, awards. That's right, you've been sitting through three hours of the Oscars, and now you're down to yeah, the ones, the ones that see. really... Um, and now I talked about best scene before, I'm going to go with my worst scene. And this was from Crazy Stupid Love. Now this was shaping up to be that great treat, the film that takes you by surprise, and delivers a genuine, heartfelt, funny film that has you recommending it to everyone when you work at the cinema. That's what I thought I'd be doing the next day, mm-hmm. telling everyone, hey, I've seen this amazing film. Film. that is until the twist right. um, I don't want to give away the twist I almost feel like I should just as a warning um, but it's a ridiculous shock moment that just stops the films in its tracks temporarily drives it into a ludicrous farce which it never recovers from mm-hmm. um, Steve Carroll, Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone Julianne Moore, they're all good in this film they really are, I even appreciated the casting of Kevin Bacon in a small but pretty pivotal role, but this one scene just, that brings them all together is, is just it's so poorly motivated it's implausible when you stop and think about it but more importantly, it does not push the film in a, in a new and interesting direction. Mm-hmm. It doesn't lead to something great that comes later on. It just uh, takes you out of the film, and the film never really brings back its energy. Right. And, uh, yeah, terrible. Yeah. I look forward to actually watching that film for that scene now. Oh, cool. Yeah, you must. <laughs> my, my worst scene is um, in, a, in a film that has got just worst scene after worst scene after worst scene. The hula dance off and just go with it. In uh, one scene... It encapsulated everything that was wrong with this film. Uh, a large woman gets laughed off the stage. Uh, Aniston somehow wins the competition while being worse than an Oscar-winning actress embarrassing herself. 
Sandor was a spectator throughout, and the scene had no point or climax and went on forever. Yeah, I don't know. I could almost randomly pick a scene from that film and describe yeah. it as the worst scene of the year. Um, look, if every script writing teacher who thinks they know anything about script writing will tell you there's one golden rule about characters. They always have to arc. Uh, they always have to have a, go through a learning process and end up different than they started. In fact, I re- read one script writing book where he suggested typing out the word always be arcing and putting it on his word processor to remind himself that characters have to change. But there's a, I don't think this is true. There's a lot of characters who uh, break this golden rule, characters who learn nothing from their life-changing events they go through. Mm. Um, and there's a few reasons why. Um, but my first is Ferris Bueller in Ferris Bueller's Day Off <laughs> from 1986. Uh, if there's any experience that should be life-changing, it'd be the day Ferris decides to grab his girlfriend and best friend, skip school, borrow a Ferrari, and have the best day off imaginable. But if Ferris learns nothing from its experiences, there's two very good reasons why. Firstly, Ferris doesn't need to learn anything. (laughs) In the world of this movie, he's got it all figured out. He's wise beyond his years and can play anyone in any situation to the best advantage for Ferris. But more importantly, despite the title and the poster art, Ferris isn't really the main character. It's it's all about his buddy Cameron, and Cameron has lots to learn. Mm. So it's really his journey, not Ferris's, that drives the film. Ferris is just the coolest guy imaginable to tag along with and help teach Cameron the lessons he learns, he needs to learn. I, I read something from a screenwriter called Michael Goldenberg who said that the protagonist is the character who suffers the most, which it's clearly got to be Cameron, <laughs> yeah. or maybe Headmaster Rooney. How was your wedding reception? Did you arrive hours late? <laughs> Did you have a bath while the main course was being served? Did you tell your boss to shove his job? Did your mother embarrass you? Did you shag some random guy? Was there a planet on a collision course with Earth hovering in the background of your wedding photos? <laughs> Then you must be cursed and dunced, and this must be melancholia. That is a terrible wedding. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a shocker. I mean, it, the wedding takes about the first hour of the film, but it felt like an eight-hour wedding. It yeah. felt longer than real a real wedding. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. And there were so many um, events in that wedding. I mean, it might have been extravagant and beautiful, but it had more episodes than Happy Days. There's all the usual speeches, wedding dances, cake cuttings, but it just never seems to end. And just when you think it might, there's lantern lightings and a soup van for late-night bowls of chowder. It just goes forever. Exactly. I can see why um, Kirsten Dunst is getting uh, like ready for bed at some point. People are like, ah, she's not here. And it's like, how long are you going to take? Yeah. This has got to stop eventually. Yeah. I reckon Skarsgård didn't blow the joint because of Dunstan's infidelity. He simply got bored. <laughs> He's got bored of the whole event and said, look, i gotta, I got to get out of here. Now, I like a good musical. I'm just a sucker for the spectacle and joyfulness, if that's a word, of watching extraordinarily, even freakishly talented people dancing and singing and performing at a level that seems effortless, and yet is completely beyond anything I could ever imagine doing. Which is why I don't get Mamma Mia. <laughs> a film with songs we've all heard before, sung badly, horribly in some cases, just horribly, with amateurish dancing, but otherwise fine actors, in the service of a half-assed story. How did this thing become a hit? I just don't get this. When I watch a great musical like Singing in the Rain, I'm in awe of the grace and ability of all of the leads. Mm-hmm. They're simply mesmerising. Yet the best I've heard in response to Mamma Mia in defence is a kind of grudging, ah, Meryl Streep can sing surprisingly well. And hey, she almost did the splits once. (laughs) And that's from folks that love the film. I think if you enjoy Meryl Streep singing, then you're far too easily impressed, frankly. You'd be the sort of person doling out standing ovations to almost anyone giving it a go at your local karaoke night. And she's probably the best singer in this film. Try defending whatever the hell Pierce Brosnan's up to. (laughs) I found myself wondering why they didn't give his role to Stellan Skarsgård or Colin Firth until I heard them trying to sing at the end of the film, and then suddenly knew what was going on. And why cast so many quality actors that can't sing and dance? Shouldn't you be watching great singers and dancers instead? 
I mean, say what you will about a film like Hairspray, but Zac Efron at is at least a song and dance man. <laughs> at least he knows what he's doing there. I really don't care so much about his acting because, I don't know how often I have to say this, I'm watching a musical. I want to enjoy quality singing and dancing. If the story behind Mamma Mia was some kind of Paddy Chayefsky scripted piece of genius, I could understand having a cast this solid. But it's not. It's, it's, it's soap opera level fluff. All right, I haven't even talked about the wedding, have I? No. All right, okay, so getting to the <laughs> wedding, which is the crux of the whole film, the reason for its existence, if you will. Well, spoiler alert, folks, it doesn't happen. Amanda Seyfried, after dragging me through this insufferable rubbish, decides not to get married, but to just, you know, hang out and travel and stuff. And then Street hooks up with one of the men. I don't, and I don't want to spoil it for you, Will, but I will say it's the most classically good-looking of the options. The one most likely to have been James Bond in a previous film role. Right. And then, I don't know, everyone sings and dances some more and decides not to think about what an extravagant, expensive, pointless waste of time this whole wedding has been. <laughs> I love how you've picked two films that, A, I haven't seen, and B, I didn't watch because I knew I would hate them. I don't... If you like this film because you're an ABBA fan, do you really want to hear people butcher ABBA songs? Yeah. You know, if I was an ABBA fan, I would think I would go, well, jeez, I don't want to hear... You know, I don't want to hear Pierce Brosnan sing. <laughs> you know, right. I'll, just, I'll just get my CD out and I'll listen yeah. to that a bit. You've got a license to kill disco classics. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we've said it before, romantic comedy putzes. I know yeah. we've harped on about this many times, but let's make it official and nail a sucker up there once before. Yeah, yeah. Bill Pullman in Sleepless in Seattle, to Patrick Dempsey in Sweet Home Alabama, to Brooklyn Decker and Just Go With It, not even dignifying the insult and putzing it out off screen. Oh, terrible. Um, to Danny Aiello in Moonstruck. This must stop. At least for the sake of people who aren't going to get a lead role. The filmmakers want us to like the character who's putzing the parts, who's yeah. dropping the parts. So if they have the parts, take it. It doesn't seem like, oh, it's okay. You know, everything's yeah. fine. They don't mind. Yeah. You know, it's easier that way. Yeah, if the putzy is just like, well, it's meant to be, yeah. the putzer gets off. Yeah, it gets off scot-free. Uh, yeah. It's lazy. I just want to kick off with a bit of a confession, if you don't mind, Duncan, mm -hmm. which will surprise no one. I've rolled the odd D20 in my time, um, <laughs> slayed the odd goblin, cast the occasional fireball, and maybe even failed a routine saving throw versus paralysis once or twice. Uh, so I know a bit about Dungeons & Dragons, the cult role-playing game that invented role-playing and was once a cultural behemoth before it simply became the clearest sign that someone you were talking to was just a nerd. Which is partly why the film, Dungeons & Dragons, which came out in 2000, coming almost 30 years too late to catch on to the zeitgeist, is such an abomination. It captures none of the imagination and invention that I know decades of games and gamers must have thrown up. D&D is a vast, sprawling game system, and over the years it's been populated by hordes of memorable heroes and villains, uh, stories and wondrous settings, yet the film simply tells us yet another subpar Star Wars knockoff, populated by awful one-dimensional characters, including Marlon Wayans as snails, a hideously racist caricature, by the way. <laughs> Dialogue is weak, the acting veers from full-on over-the-top ham of Jeremy Irons to uh, simply best-forgotten performances, and the film looks ghastly. It's either huge, sweeping, yet clunky CGI vistas or pokey cheap sets uh, with nothing in between. But really, it's just the wasted potential that bothers me the most. In a world in which a theme park ride can give us an entire Pirates of the Caribbean franchise <laughs> and an iconic character in Captain Jack Sparrow, how can a fantasy world as rich as Dungeons & Dragons get such a shoddy movie? And um, also, dwarves should be smaller than the average person. That's why they're called dwarves, right? How can you get that wrong? I mean, when you've got a dwarf who's like almost six foot tall, <laughs> I haven't seen Dungeons and Dragons. I've heard that it's uh, it's abysmal. It's it's not often I recommend bad movies as well, but this one's so bad it's almost worth a look at. Let me lead off with a film that I was excited for as a child and simultaneously disappointed as a child. 
Uh, maybe you can call it revisionist criticism, but I distinctly remember watching 1987's Masters of the Universe and wondering what the hell the filmmakers were thinking. Regardless of all the inherent cheesiness the toy line possessed, the only way to imbue this with more fromage was by inserting them into the real world. And that's exactly what they did. They brought the Masters to Earth, which uh, is clearly the single stupidest plot device a script could deliver for these guys, as well as some truly awful casting. And Dolph Lundgren as He-Man is the least of your problems. Mm. Well, okay, he's a pretty big problem. But it made perfect sense to give him the role at the time. Courtney Cox shows up in this, and uh, in a career of uh, very big highs and very big lows, uh, this is surely at the bottom. Uh, it also matches up the worst parts of Star Wars, namely the Ewoks and Jar Jar Binks in one creature called Gwildor, who is responsible for the cosmic MacGuffin everyone is fighting over. Naturally, this key to all the power in the universe can be mistaken for a keyboard, so uh, therefore it's natural that large battles between intergalactic gods should take place in a music store. And that in the epilogue, Cox's long-since-dead parents um, miraculously brought back to life. Uh, in fact, this film is an atrocity, and yet somehow glides under the radar of truly reviled films, mainly because I think few expected anything from it in the first place, except a disappointed 11-year-old me. <laughs> well, look, twin spoiler-alert obsessions collide in one new film, uh, Shia LaBeouf is to appear in Lars von Trier's latest you know, called Nymphomaniac. I didn't, I didn't touch this one because I figured you would, so go ahead. Yeah, so um, it's called Nymphomaniac, and uh, apparently the Lebeef admitted to sending sex tapes of himself with his girlfriend to the Danish filmmaker to get his attention, yeah. which obviously worked. I heard he did the same thing with Spielberg to get the role of Mark Williams <laughs> in Indiana Jones. <laughs> now, uh, if, uh, now if, I'm not sure I want to see Lebeef's Lebeef. <laughs> Uh, now if only Shia can get Von Trier to direct Transformers 4. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a much better film, I can tell you that. Well, look, recently I became aware of something called Minecraft. It's a kind of computer game where you construct things out of square blocks. Have you seen this thing? Uh, I'm aware of it. Oh, you are? Okay, I wasn't. It's essentially Lego for people who don't like actually touching stuff. <laughs> um, the reason I became aware of it, though, is through seeing a video on the internet of someone's recreation of the Battle of Hoth using Minecraft, all set to the original audio from The Empire Strikes Back. It looked pretty terrible, actually. Yeah. Um, but this forced me to acknowledge something I've probably known for a couple of years now, and, and it's been weighing on my mind, and, and I've got to address it today. It's time to turn our backs on the original Star Wars films. Now, growing up, Star Wars was one of the constant obsessions of my young life. I collected the Star Wars figures, had a stash of comics, uh, an Empire Strikes Back t-shirt, I wish I still had that, um, and a pile of scrapbooks I'd use for drawing Star Wars pictures and writing my own Star Wars-related stories. But here's the rub. I'm now at the point where I feel no need to watch any of the original th three films ever again. It's bad enough that Lucas himself has robbed those films of their mystery and secret history by filling in almost every gap possible in the most disappointing way possible. But I'm not here to bag the prequels. There's a million websites that'll do that for me, so we, we can move past that. My issue is that I think there's not a moment in those three original films that I haven't seen copied, parodied, or paid tribute to, recreated in live action, animation, and stop motion, and now Minecraft. Every moment of the Star Wars carcass has been picked over and over until the bones are bleached clean. Then those bones will be broken open so the marrow can be sucked out by Family Guy episodes and robot chicken skits. <laughs> so I'm begging you Star Wars fans out there, don't make another sketch based on your favourite scene out of the original trilogy. Just stop, leave the films alone, so that one day we can all approach them again, clean and fresh, with pure, childlike, innocent eyes, once again. That was really heartfelt. <laughs> I meet every word. Well, look, milliseconds after we came up with the idea for this top five, one character came immediately to mind. The kid from Over the Top. 
Since the first and the only time I watched the Stallone arm wrestling epic back in the mid-80s, I've been waiting to ridicule this performance. He's a snot loser, brat. <laughs> Spoilt and petulant army brat, who doesn't appreciate that his father is Sylvester Stallone and that he's worth of anything until he sees him breaking men's arms in seedy Midwestern bars. To lay the blame entirely at the filmmaker's feet is tempting, but unfortunately, Michael Hawks, who plays the kid, has the lethal combination of a horrible side-switch haircut and a supremely smug face. Truck stops are notorious for the last sighting of children, and you wonder if it briefly crossed Stallone's mind to just leave the kid behind at one of <laughs> at one of them, because within 15 minutes of the film, it certainly did occur to me. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a really irritating kid. They go out of the way to make him irritating. Um, but yeah, you're right. Stallone's a truck driving father who arm wrestles championship arm wrestling belts. That's the coolest dad in the world, man. Yeah, right there. That's like having um John Matrix as your dad, eh? Yeah. You can't feel bad about that. Yeah, like what are you disappointed about? Um, um and the haircut. You're right. It's it's like those pudding bowl haircuts you see a lot of kids wearing in movies. It's supposed to make them look cute and endearing, but just make you. Dude, you're going to get bullied at school if yeah. you carry that off. Get in an arm wrestling contest with one of those truckers and they just snap your arm. Yeah, off. yeah. <laughs> um, things to like about Over the Top, though, uh, Stallone turning his cap round backwards when he goes to business. Yeah. And uh, the theme song, Over the Top. Over the Top. Both of which everyone still says when you get into arm wrestling competitions now. You've got to. Yeah, everyone's like, then I turn into a machine. The Wicker Man from 2006. Uh, anti-directed by the generally solid Neil LeBute. Did you say anti-directed? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I said anti-directed, by the generally solid Neil LeBute, uh, who happens to be a very gifted writer. This is the biggest misstep in his career, but just another revolution in the ever-decreasing circle of hell that is Nicolas Cage's filmography. Mm. Pouring acid onto the project by casting the reigning champ of reprehensible remakes, his performance alone is tired, confused, and bland. This film is not quite the abomination you may have heard, but it is still awful. Genuinely laughable at times, especially when Cage punches no less than three women in five minutes. Fatally, the world we enter has no seductive qualities. There are no temptations, no inward battle for the soul of the central character, no irony, and for all its absurdity, almost zero sense of fun. And as much as I love Ellen Bernstein, she is not even in the same universe as Christopher Lee as the cult's leader. Which leads to the true pointlessness of it all. Uh, like the proposed Videodrome remake that Simon is hiding under his covers in fear of, um, this was always going to enrage the rabid fans of the original and just mystify any new viewers. I recently rewatched the original Wicker Man. Yeah. And you know how uh, when he turns up, there's this uh, sense of playfulness. It's weird. It's yeah. strange. But there's a sense of playfulness. There's um, seductive women. There's uh, singing. There's you know having a good time at the pub and music. But there's none of that. It's just every. It's like they've gone to the village of the damned, and everyone's just Amish and miserable the whole time. That's right. In the original, uh, it's got some real quirk to it, and like you say, the seductiveness, especially in the extended version, yeah, is, is palpable. Again, have not seen this film, yeah, and and for much the same reasons as I haven't seen Psycho. I love Wick, the Wicker Man. Mm. The original is just an amazing film. It's uh, it's one of my favourites. I've seen no point in watching. But but like you say too, with uh, the video drone comparisons, fair because. I understand remaking Evil Dead and Friday the 13th because those titles are strong mm. and, and there's brand recognition and value attached to those titles. I don't believe there is The Wicker Man, which was never a big hit. And also it has, of course, one of the great embarrassing Nicolas Cage moments, which is The Bees. You may have um, seen that online. On YouTube? On YouTube. Times. Yeah. Well, that is cut out of the actual movie. So if you watch it on DVD, depending on which version you get, you won't see oh, that's not good. the actual Bees part in it. 
And um, I watched this, I think, on Sky, and it didn't have the bees part in it, which is confusing because it's, it's right at the end before he gets put inside the Wicker Man. He has a mask over his face, and it pulls off, and he's got all these massive bee stings, but they've cut that part out. Wow, so, that's weird. Yeah, it's hilarious. Nicolas Cage is dreadful in this. He has actually said, speaking of Michael Bay, you know, apologising for one th- one thing out of his filmography. Same thing with Nicolas Cage. They asked him, What's the, wh- what would you like to expunge from your CV? He said, The Wicker Man. I'm like, mate, how about the last 10 years? Well, from what I've heard, that's a fair expunging, though. <laughs> yeah, I know, but come on. Bangkok Dangerous, like, <laughs> <laughs> somehow trumps it. Well, look, as a dyed-in-the-wool horror fan, I've been keeping a careful eye on the Evil Dead for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Following the shifting sands of geek enthusiasm as casting announcements, red band trailers, and publicity posters all rolled out. Now that the film's out and everyone's had a chance to see it and critique it, I feel I should tell the online horror fans to all take a deep, collective breath and just calm down everyone evil dead was never going to be the film you wanted it in your horror hearts and yet i've read otherwise reasonable horror geek saying that evil dead was like scary movie minus the laughs two things wrong there firstly scary movie is scary movie minus the laughs (laughs) and secondly just no that's not a comparison you make at all that's not fair i understand if you didn't like evil dead but we all need to be a little more realistic about what to expect hollywood reboots i think i know it's ridiculous for a horror fan on a movie podcast to tell other horror fans to show restraint. Uh, but there you go. Just calm down, people. All right. Old people, you suck. <laughs> Not actual real-life old people, of course, because they kind of rule. And if, uh, if any of them are listening, and uh, if you are listening, come to Facebook, like us, leave a comment. Um, I don't think you are listening. But if they were, I'd want those old people to know that they're fascinating, often inspiring people with a wealth of knowledge, life experience, and wisdom to share. But of course, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about old movie old people. You know, who exist, those creatures exist solely as beings pitched somewhere between your kids and your pets. Somehow both incredibly wide-eyed and simple-minded innocence. Seeing our adult world through the wrinkled eyes of a child simultaneously, paradoxically somehow. And, and also kind of simultaneously cutesy creatures deployed to make us laugh and inexplicably swear or make a sexual remark. Because as we all know from our experiences as moviegoers, Old people have no experience of profanity or sex, despite, you know, the fact that they're clearly responsible for producing the generation that comes immediately after them. Anyway, Song for Marion really reminded me of this annoying trope with its endless parade of oldies pretending to be bemused by rap and the music of Motorhead, a band who are probably older than most of this film's cast (laughs) at this stage. Yeah, the two leads are treated as real people, but every other elderly character is simply an excuse for a rude joke, which is apparently hilarious because, you know, old. (laughs) <laughs> or a goofy shot of an elderly person doing that heavy metal goat's hand gesture, which is also apparently hilarious because, you know, old again. It's simply not funny, filmmakers. All it is is lazy and demeaning, and I'm just really, really tired at this stage. And especially the goat thing, throwing up the goat. Ronnie James Dio popularised that with Black yeah. Sabbath, so that was probably like mid-70s. So yeah. that's nearly 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So they probably would have been 30, maybe, when he came out with that. So Song of Marion is about all, all these um, old people who, who, who form a, a choir and sing songs. And, of course, one of the songs they end up singing is, um, is a song about sex. I can't remember what it is. And it's just like, oh, old people saying sex. Oh. Hitting the stop button on a DVD is easy. I think we're all agreed to that. Yeah. Getting up and walking out of a cinema mid-film takes a bit more of an effort, particularly for me, particularly if you're paid. Yeah. Uh, so it takes a truly dreary film experience to cause me to quit a big, a big screen screening. And that's exactly what 2008's Jumper was. (laughs) 
Hayden Christensen, the charisma sinkhole from the Star Wars prequels, has the unexplained but undeniably cool ability to teleport, which he mostly seems to use to rob banks and stuff because he's a jerk. He also wants to hook up with childhood sweetheart Rachel Bilson, with whom he shares less romantic chemistry than Duncan and I do. Oh. Or... <laughs> That's not an insult, That's man. a crushing blow. No. <laughs> well, we, we clearly do. Also, Samuel L. Jackson is trying to kill him for perhaps the most unlikely and poorly developed reason of any villain I've ever seen in a movie. After 20 minutes, I decided I just didn't care. And no one in this film seems to either. Our lead is a scumbag without even the magnetism to make him an interesting scumbag. And Jackson's bad guy doesn't for a moment seem convinced by his own dialogue. So that didn't seem to bode all that well. Mm. Roger Ebert, in one of those great, insightful reviews he seemed to effortlessly toss off, pointed to a scene where Christensen and Bilson talk while in the background two men watch a football game on a TV. As Ebert said, you'll watch those men watch the football game, or you'll watch the football game, but you won't watch what's happening in the foreground. And he's right. It was one of the last things I saw, actually, before I got out of the cinema seat and headed to the door. My life can be separated into two distinct eras, the wonder of innocent youth and the crushing realisation that I would never actually get the chance to fly in the Millennium Falcon. But I would still love to own it. <laughs> Not a model, but the full-scale yeah. full size Falcon. <laughs> Obviously, I still couldn't zoom through the galaxy in it, but I could live in it. That's right, I would convert it into a house. Mm -hmm. The cockpit would be a conservatory, the vast <laughs> windows allowing this afternoon sun to pour in as I lay on the pilot seat <laughs> that would now be a newly installed Lazy Boy. The control panel would have TV, radios, and internet mm -hmm. access as I sat watching cricket. Naturally, the long hallways of the interior would be perfect for playing actual cricket mm -hmm. indoors. And in the other room, there would always be a game of actual chess going on instead of hollow chess. Um, although, if CNN's election coverage is to be believed, I could probably have a game of hollow chess as well. <laughs> um, but maybe the pieces will be all made up of tiny two-pack shakurs. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the cargo hole would be a good place for a bedroom, especially without Jabba's smuggled goods clogging it up. Mm -hmm. And the satellite dish would be powerful enough to pick up anything beamed across the planet. Uh, I could convert the glass garden turrets into glass houses for my veggie garden. And the photo opportunities and guided tours offered by me dressed as a Wookiee would pay for the mortgage <laughs> within a year. And of course, if anyone came over and commented on the ridiculous state of my house, I'd simply say, she might not look like much kid, but she's got to wear accounts. <laughs> Ah, oh, you've you've got to figure it figured out. You, <laughs> it's it's the dream. It is the dream. We'll be living the dream. That's one of the few things of this podcast ah. I'm seriously considering. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an awesome idea because of course there was a full size falcon, wasn't there? Yeah, there yeah. was. Yeah, and yeah. if anyone did come around and you didn't want to see them, you just hide in those like um, smuggling compartments. Yeah, and and wait for them to leave. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. But I love the irresistibly nuts fight between Peter Cabot, the high kicking pommel horse conquering hero of the '80s action flick Jim Carter and the horde of peasants he inexplicably mows through. As a result of some sort of MacGuffinous spy plot that manages to make the US good guys look like complete dicks, Cabot, I'll repeat this again, a gymnast, played in fact by world champion gymnast Kurt Thomas, is sent undercover to an Eastern European country named Palmerstan. <laughs> <laughs> Palmerstan cheese with yeah. that, thanks. Palmerstan North. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in order to win some sort of tournament, thus opening the way for the US to build a Star Wars missile defense site on Palmerston soil. I told you, these guys are jerks. Oh, I miss the 80s, man. Before long, Cabot runs afoul of a bunch of local yokels and is hunted down until he must defend himself in the tiny medieval village's town square. Unfortunately for this rabble of rhubarbing roughnecks, they've somehow negligently managed to construct a large concrete, concrete pommel horse-looking structure in the middle of the square. And when I say pommel horse-looking, 
I pretty much mean an actual pommel horse, complete <laughs> with the handles and everything. There really is just no reason for a concrete piece of gymnastic equipment to be in this open space. And there's no other explanation for what it can be. And yet there is no doubt whatsoever in anyone's mind watching the scene, that is a pommel horse yeah. in the middle of a town square. It makes no sense whatsoever. And yet there it is. And right. we've got to accept it. Of course, Cabot leaps onto the pommel horse and starts swinging those gold medal winning legs around, smashing into a succession of stunned faces. Inexplicably, most of the townsfolk have come armed with pitchforks and the like. In other words, the exact perfect weapon to use to defeat a man who's practically a human windmill made of legs. <laughs> and yet no one seems to use him. Instead, somehow, everyone seems to be hypnotised by the pinwheeling blur of feet and legs and just wanders aimlessly into their path like moss into a flame <laughs> made of feet. <laughs> Bizarrely, it seems, though being hideously outnumbered, a mob of pitchfork-wielding villagers is no match for Kurt Thomas, provided there's a pommel horse close at hand, of course. Excellent. I truly love that scene. There are many iconic questions in cinema. Are you talking to me? And of course, dude, where's my car? <laughs> but my favourite has to be, what's in the basket? Ah, uh, yes. A question you won't live long enough to regret asking. In basket case, non-threatening everyman Dwayne travels from low-life hotel to flea-ridden motel with a basket. Everyone is curious about what exactly is in it. The answer is a failed abortion. Belial is Dwayne's separated Siamese twin brother who has a telepathic communication with the tortured Dwayne and an insatiable appetite for murder, particularly, but not exclusively, focused on the doctors who tried to kill him. Belial has many great scenes, but the final one, shot from point of view as he traverses a sleeping woman's naked body, is perhaps the creepiest mutant scene in recent memory. <laughs> it also gets special mention for making an unforgettably horrifying evening at one of our Halloween movie nights. Yeah. People still talk to me about that. It's amazing, that film. Um, there's two sequels to it as well. Uh, which, which, is, which is crazy. Like, this guy who is just, like, horrible is somehow, you know, and just, like, evil is just yeah. somehow beloved. Yeah, in a weird way. Uh, I love the fact that sometimes he's a puppet, but at other times he's like one of those clay stop-motion figures. Yeah. Which is, looks terrible, but also charming. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know how his anatomy works. How, <laughs> I've, I haven't figured that out. How is he so incredibly strong? Yeah, and he um, can like leap around and stuff as well. Yeah, he moves. Eh? He yeah. really does travel. Uh, I love that film. Yeah. As Django Fett once famously said in a Kiwi accent, I'm just a simple man trying to make my way in the universe. We all are, Simon. Even Mel Gibson is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all Gary Oldman was trying to say. And that's all he was trying to say. Mel's a good guy. Get off his back. Was the subtext, <laughs> there wasn't any other subtext, of his racially charged, expletive-filled rant in an interview. Uh, much has been made of this. Uh, but my problem is with the inevitable apology that followed. Oldman's mea culpa even reduced him to branding himself as an asshole. Uh, the issue is doubled down when you consider that his initial problem was with censorship by the PC Brigade, and here he is censoring himself out of career preservation, uh, rather than any true change of heart. He's proving his own point by being a massive hypocrite. Now, whether one agrees with any of Oldman's sentiments or not, the Hollywood apology, much like the sportsman's apology, has become meaningless and stands only for, I'm sorry I got caught. Mm. Uh, Oldman believes 100% in what he said It's difficult yep. to say something that passionately Without believing it And it's far too easy to offer a bland backpedal So up on the tree of woe with you Hollywood apology And if there is an outcry I'll just quietly take you down And re release a prepared apology <laughs> via my publicist <laughs> uh, You know that's an I hadn't really thought too much about the apology uh, my, my issue was uh, And what got me most about this um, this interview is that Ullman seemed for an actor capable of really nuanced, understated performances in films like Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy, 
kind of completely unaware that Gibson's rants weren't some sort of sincere, reasonable expression of a man's beliefs, or even themselves as a, a swipe at PC culture run amok. It was simply an angry explosion of hate from a bigoted man. Mm. Um, and I just can't believe that Ullman doesn't seem to get the distinction here. It's, it's like Playboy weren't interviewing George Smiley, they were interviewing Zorg from the Fifth Element. <laughs> so imagine this. You're an invalid, unable to leave your home, unable to even move. And then, while everyone else is out at work, a pair of thieves sneak in, kill your favourite pet, and then destroy your most treasured belonging. And then, before you really know what's happening, the nasty invaders get some mates to pick them up and get the hell out of there. But not before ensuring you're left for dead in the ruins of your own abode. Shocking. And that's just the miserable fate faced face by Sauron on the Great and Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. <laughs> Look, every villain is the hero of their own story. They have their own motivations and feelings, and perhaps you should take a moment to consider life from their point of view. Sure, on the face of it, Sauron's a pretty bad guy. I can accept it. After all, he's intent on waging war on the peoples of Middle-earth. But I'm sure he's got his reason. In fact, I'm pretty convinced he's been wronged in the past. That is if I read the Silmarillion correctly. And who the hell knows? <laughs> I mean, who's going to correct me on my knowledge of the Silmarillion, you know? <laughs> really, write in if you've got an issue. One man's fellowship of the ring is just another man's fellowship of bastards. <laughs> I think that's probably the most unique take on the Lord of the Rings I've, I've heard. See it from Sauron's point of view, man. Well, look, after many months of annoying tropes and actors and directors staying and doing stupid things, last month I even turned on myself and our audience to be hoisted on the tree of woe. Well, this month I'm proud to say that for once in a long time, a single film has gotten my goat. Only God forgives. Uh, splitting critical opinion as viciously as its characters split skulls. It's a grim art house movie that is about as passionless as a movie as you will ever see. The characters range from silent to laconic. Their appeal from unlikable to downright repellent. Uh, quite what this film is aiming for was lost on me. The cinematography was nice, though. <laughs> the novelty of, rather than the actual performance of, Kristen Scott Thomas chewing scenery like the production designers made the sets out of gingerbread and she hadn't eaten in a week. Um, <laughs> critics who applauded the film used phrases like aesthetic appeal, deep symbolism, and perhaps the most infuriatingly of all to an uber fan like me, they even invoke the term Lynchian. Only God Forgives is devoid of scares, tension, humour, character or thematic development. A straightforward revenge fantasy where everyone dies and you couldn't care less. So up onto the tree of woe with you and with as much bored bloodshed and pain as you inflict on your characters. That Ryan Gosling's dreamy though, right? Oh yeah, he's, he's a great body. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about the golden age of video rentals, but my tree of woe for this month is a film that actually tries to trade in our collective love for that era. A film that winks and grins at us and asks its audience to wallow in nostalgia for a period that most most of that audience just haven't lived through, while simultaneously mocking it. And that film is the gloriously titled The Disco Exorcist. Right. Uh, how could I go past a film called The Disco Exorcist? One with the taglines, Get Down to Hell. And he's the boogeyman baby. Um, of course I couldn't. There's no way I wasn't going to watch that. But unfortunately, The Disco Exorcist was one of that terrible subset of bad films that want to be bad. They think copying bad film tropes and techniques, adding post-production film scratches, um, and film frame graphics that say missing real, like they're the first people to do that, you know, mm. will make their film funny and smart somehow avoiding the accusation of just making a smug, artless pastiche of 70s exploitation by being able to wink at the audience and kind of smirkly say, hey, that's what we're aiming for. It's yeah. a joke, you know? The thing is, there can be joy in discovering a truly, truly bad film, a film that aims high 
but is made by people who lack the ability, experience, and self-awareness to produce anything but a laughable mess. Uh, that's how we get the pleasures of rock and roll nightmare with its endless driving scenes <laughs> and eye-wateringly bad demonic confrontation and that shower scene, eh? <laughs> um, or the lumbering ridiculousness of Burial Ground and its one unforgettable twist and the gobsmacking piece of casting that makes that twist possible. The directors of those films were trying to make good films. But when you set out to make a bad film, you're almost always doomed to failure. There's a special set of circumstances and an, a kind of unholy cinematic alignment of terribleness that makes a great, great bad film. Cynicism, mimicry, and good marketing just doesn't cut it. No. So that's my trio wife this month. All the legion of deliberately bad films with their knowing tongues thrust firmly in cheek and their postmodern ironic shrugs of shoulders that tell me that everyone involved is just you know, having a laugh and don't care that they're just adding another bad film to the heap. In the worst cases, they waste the time of genuinely talented filmmakers like Robert Rodriguez, who now has two, two, I say, machete films to his credit. In the best cases, they just waste my time. And frankly, I should probably know better. <laughs> I mean, I really should. It's ridiculous. Either way, it's time they spent some time baking under the hot sun. Nailed to the tree of woe, where the only attention they'll be getting is from the vultures who tear at their self-satisfied flesh. And uh, for an iconic character connected indelibly with timeless style and elegance, there is something horrific about the ultra-cool Sean Connery at his most cool in 1964 and the coolest of all Bond films, Goldfinger. Not the best Bond film, but the coolest. Mm -hmm. In a blue, terry cloth single play suit. Shorts connected to a shirt with a belt wrapped around the middle. <laughs> all made out of the same blue towel-like material. Now, this ensemble has become somewhat notorious in 007 fan circles. Connery even delivers the mandatory Bond-James Bond line while seducing a woman, besting a villain, all to the strains of the signature James Bond theme while wearing this terry cloth blue play suit. On reflection, it is perhaps an indication of how white-hot Bond mania, and more specifically Connery was at this point, that he could pull all of this off while essentially looking like a Ken doll. Uh, it's, it's horrific. It's just yeah, the worst. I can tell you what, if I went home and tried tried my moves while wearing my terry cloth play suit, I don't think I'd be getting any, eh? Yeah, and there's actually a couple of cases. I mean, there's there's like the there's the khaki sparry suit that yep. Bond's got, and I think an octopusy, uh, and there's there's this really horrible like brown turtleneck that Connery's got in Diamonds Are Forever. So for a really iconic character who you think of just like super cool, yep. he's got some really dreadful outfits. <laughs> like I said, Jurassic World was an enjoyable monster romp. Uh, full of the sort of prehistoric carnage that I and all other audiences apparently seem to love. Jurassic World is credited to four different writers, plus Michael Crichton, of course. Uh, <laughs> but it's been kicking around for a long time. I remember discussing the concept of mercenary dinosaurs that ends up in this script, floating around years ago, even before The Expendables made it its own franchise about, <laughs> about fighting dinosaurs. See what I did? Nice. Yeah. So it's been in development hell for a while. But it seems, as Joss Whedon pointed out, at least one part of its script seems to predate even the original Jurassic Park. And that's its attitude towards women. It all starts with Bryce Dallas Howard's character, a prim, tailored businesswoman. Stick up her backside, like I said before, shrill, humorless, and poised to suck the fun out of any situation. Counted by Chris Pratt, a man's man, who is described, quite rightly, as a badass. And not only is Pratt all the awesome that Howard's corporate drone is not, but he's also right all the time. <laughs> Whereas Howard's clear knows nothing about the park she is seemingly mismanaging into the inevitable dinosaurs break loose and kill everybody scenario, Pratt's dinosaur trainer. And by the way, how is anyone qualified to become a dinosaur <laughs> trainer in the first place? Where do you go to get that sort of... I mean, he was a Navy SEAL. I mean, do they train them to... Uh, it makes no sense. He reads every situation clearly. 
thanks, I assume, to his well-developed man brain. Claire, of course, does show some character progression. Thanks to the steady output of testosterone from the manly Pratt, she transforms from a humorless career monster to a jobless maternal mate for the awesome dinosaur-taming badass. <laughs> Job done. Uh, and yet there's some other weird stuff going on. She gets to man up at one point, a moment quickly forgotten about, and kiss her man as a reward, of course, in a moment of Ripley-like heroism that feels shoehorned in to convince us she's, she's gone all kick-ass, even as she runs from a T-Rex in the film's final moments while still wearing high heels, which seems foolish. But if you wanted a clear example of the way this film seems to really dislike uppity women, then you need only look to Claire's assistant, Zara, a woman of a few lines and the character trait of, I'm not really sure, uh, maybe shallow or disinterested. Uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure. I want to be clear in the making, I think, perhaps. Whatever. Either way, as a warning to potential career women everywhere, she is treated to the most prolonged, unnecessary, brutal death of the film, of, of, of any of the films in the franchise. Wow. A veritable Rube Goldberg-like machine of dinosaur <laughs> moors and talons that viciously and mercilessly torments her and eventually kills her. In a film that mostly looks away when people die, and a lot of people die in this film, believe me, the savaging of poor Katie McGrath's Zara seems unnecessarily savage. Uh, one script blog I visit regularly, penned by a working scriptwriter, uh, guessed that this death is possibly a hangover from a previous draft, where a more villainous character got put through the equivalent of the dinosaur ringer, and that for some reason, possibly because it was just funny or cool or something, the scene was kept in place, but parceled off to the poor, undeserving Zara. <laughs> Perhaps that's true, but what it looks like is that Jurassic World, once again, just doesn't like women, especially ones that get all you know uppity and think they can have some sort of career or job prospects. And what makes all of this worse is it comes hot on the heels of Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, and the awesome Imperator Furiosa, played by the commanding Charlie Saron, a film that takes for granted that women can be tough and take control. And now we get Jurassic World, which seems to be saying, stand back, stand back love, let a man take care of this. <laughs> oh, That's the sort of outdated sexism that only has one place as far as I'm concerned. And unfortunately, I've reserved a spot for it on the Tree of Life, where it's cringe-inducing misogyny can be torn apart by vultures. With all the brutality that Jurassic World reserved for women, who apparently just don't know their place. <laughs> wow I was kind of keen to see this film um, I don't know if I don't want to give it my money now it's something it really is yeah. um, the only moment of character building and, and I wasn't I didn't really notice it at the time but um, I read a bit later on people were talking about it was she's on the phone to her fiance saying that he's not allowed to have a bachelor party right so Basically, she's a ball-busting shrew, and that's her only, you know, right. moment. And apparently, that made her deserving of the worst death you could ever see. Wow! She's just flung around endlessly before uh, ending up in the mouth of one dinosaur that gets swallowed by another dinosaur. Wow! You know, it's just—I I don't know <laughs> what she did to deserve that. <laughs> no idea. Spoiler alert. Well, that was an interesting walk down memory lane, wasn't it, Simon? Yeah, a lot of opinions I still agree with. I obviously have not watched any more Star Wars films. <laughs> <laughs> I kept true to that promise. Yeah, never right. seen another Star Wars film. Yeah, never rewatched a Star Wars film. Uh, given up on the entire franchise. Yeah, yeah, it's been um, a pretty quiet six years for you since Force Awakens. Totally, Wars. totally. Yeah, yeah. Avoiding trailers, avoiding the movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Man, I can't believe I said that. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> wow, that's aged badly. Some some of it is aged very well though. I mean, it's interesting yeah. to hear us uh, talking putzes and putsies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and putzers. Yeah, that's right. And I just, <laughs> I just love that we're <laughs> we're still on the putz ride. You know, we're still talking about it. And well, it, ten it, years it, later, it shocked me that we'd still be talking about it. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, Movies have learned nothing. Exactly, yeah. If only they'd listen to our podcast. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, that, that was an interesting. Uh, I like how many rants we, we, we've seemed to have chosen as well. Yeah. Just like rant after rant. No, we've got some Von Trier news in there as well, which was funny, and, and Shia LaBeouf and Sandler. Sandler, who um, we haven't talked about much for a while, actually. No, no. He's, well, I think I think the last thing I was giving him was uh, props for Uncut Gems. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's doing well, mainly because I avoid everything else he releases. So. Yeah, wisely. Um, yeah, that's right. But um, no, no. So that's uh, I'm looking forward to listening to the next five years in the space. Yeah, of, uh, me 40 too. Minutes. Me too. Yeah. So uh, tune in for ep ninety five. Yeah. Um, next month, the conclusion to mm-hmm. our walk down memory lane. Uh, we've got a lot of interesting things in there to chat about. Um, we talk a little bit about uh, spontaneous human combustion. Oh, something so good. That you were you were terrified of as a kid? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, the yep. song we're going out to. Well, I mean, we started talking about the Beatles and the movie yesterday, full of great Beatles songs. Yeah. So we're playing the only song that's not a Beatles song <laughs> from yesterday, a summer song. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so this is, I, I still think this should have been worked into the uh, the conclusion of the of You're the probably film. right. Yeah. It's just, a, you know, missed opportunity. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so uh, thanks everyone for listening and um, yeah. we'll see you next month. Thank you. Cheers. The sun's in the sky. Nothing can go wrong Kiss winter goodbye And sing this summer song Whoa, whoa, whoa I'm gonna sing this summer song Whoa, whoa, whoa I'm gonna sing all summer long It's a very nice It's not a very nice song, Nick. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. Wow. It's not Coldplay.